Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies. I'm your host, uh, Max Kaiser. We have a great show for you today. With us, we have Irene Algenzia, who is Professor Emerita in the Department of Political Science at Boston University. She's here to talk about her new book, Dying to Forget, Oil, Power, Power... Welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies. I'm your host, uh, Max Kaiser. We have a great show for you today. With us, we have Irene Algenzia, who is Professor Emerita in the Department of Political Science at Boston University. She's here to talk about her new book, Dying to Forget, Oil, Power, Palestine, and the Foundations of U.S. Policy in the Middle East, published in 2015 by Columbia University Press. Thanks very much for being with us on the program today, Irene. It's a great pleasure to be here. So just to uh, start off, could you tell us how you came to write this book? Well, you know, I have a uh, an ongoing interest in uh, U.S. foreign policy and working in U.S. archives. I had published some years ago a book called Notes from the Minefield, U.S. Intervention in Lebanon and the Middle East in 1958. And I found that a um, very, very compelling adventure uh, and, and the the ease of access of archival sources here uh, and the finding, new findings, it made me think that uh, it might be useful to look at 1948. Of course, the events of 48 have been and are permanently uh on on the agenda, it's just, uh, the, the subject of Israel and Palestine is is uh, understandably a, a one of a constant interest, um, and the possibility of uh, reconsidering, uh, discovering whether or not there was uh, new U.S. material that had or U.S. material that had not previously been examined was very very tempting uh, for me. So I have I'm a long term student of history and. Uh, well, there are, you know, there are, there are many, many reasons why this would be an important subject, but that that might give people a clue. Right. So just to set the scene for uh, talking about um, the main arguments and themes of your book, can you tell us a bit about what has been the dominant interpretation of U.S. policy in the Middle East, particularly in the period that you look at, which is the late 40s, and begin to tell us a bit about how your book challenges that interpretation. Yes. Well, um, now I'm looking specifically uh, at the uh, emergence of the Israel-Palestine conflict. And there is, of course, a substantial literature on the conflict. There is less than you might think on the uh, U.S. role. But uh, there are two factors that, or three perhaps, uh, that, that are important or that have been traditionally dominant in interpretations of the subject. One, of course, is the Cold War. The uh, beginnings and the manifestations of U.S. 
Soviet tensions in the area of the Eastern Mediterranean and the oil-producing areas of the Middle East, which were of, of enormous importance to the U.S. in the post-war period. So the second, um, I would say, emphasis, but it is uh, uh, perhaps more my emphasis than, than that of many others, is the role of oil in the construction of U.S. policy in this period. Now, with respect to U.S. policy in Palestine and Israel, uh, many students of the Truman administration argue that he was himself a religious man. He was very moved, not only by the events of the Holocaust, but by his own study of the Bible and uh, was uh, very much persuaded, many people argued, by the common values of the new state of Israel and and. Uh, and, and the U.S., and for that reason, uh, pursued a number of different policies. So the first looks at uh, the question of the Cold War. Uh, the second uh, looks at the issue of oil. The third looks at the uh, uh, search for uh, allies, common values, and uh, the extent to which Israel fits that. Now, my own work, I uh, argue that uh, the, the U.S. evidence that I have found indicates that oil was the dominant uh, concern of the U.S. after 1945. That is to say, the future of uh, U.S. oil company holdings in the uh, area of Saudi Arabia in particular, where uh, uh, what became Aramco in 1947 was operating. And the concern for for uh, the role of oil in uh, national defense and foreign policy is very, very clear in the secondary literature on uh, the post-war period and in the primary sources of, of the U.S. as well. So I didn't find that to be particularly uh, controversial. What uh, surprised me and what um, I think surprised many readers as well was the extent to which the issue of oil figures in the policy towards Palestine, that, that, that's a connection that hasn't really been made, I think, as, as closely. Um, while I'm sympathetic to the question of values, I don't think that it was a determining factor. Uh, the role of the Holocaust, which is one of the questions you want to turn to uh, in a moment, yes, this, this is a factor uh, in the molding of policy in this particular area. Okay. Well, I think we'll we'll return to um, looking at at oil in particular, but yeah, maybe if we can go on and 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 talk about um, how important the impact of the Holocaust was, and particularly the issue of um, post-war European Jewish refugees in in shaping U.S. policy. Mm. <clears throat> uh, good. I think uh, both are, uh, are are very important. The first, of course. In, in a very general way, I mean conditions of the U.S. The conditions that the U.S. Uh, found, knew about, intervened in in the Europe post 1945 were very much marked by the uh, the Holocaust and the refugee, the Jewish, the European refugee problem, including the Jewish refugee problem. On that issue, I found, by the way, something called the Harrison Report that you might be interested in. In June 1945, uh, <clears throat> President Truman uh, decided after he had come back from 
Pot, uh, from Potsdam, he decided to investigate conditions of the displaced persons in Europe, and uh, particularly those survivors of the war who were the American zone of occupation in Germany. Uh, the result was he appointed Earl Harrison, who was a professor of law um, at UPenn, to uh, head a commission to go and investigate uh, conditions in that area. And Harrison came back with a report that was very harsh, harsh in, in terms of the conditions in which uh, under which uh, refugees were kept uh, to the to the surprise of Truman, to the shock of Eisenhower, who was ultimately in charge of, of the region. <clears throat> but Harrison also came back with uh, uh, many ideas about uh, what was necessary. Uh, the, the prime issue, of course, was to improve the conditions, the uh, living conditions in these areas. But uh, second to that was uh, the desire of the refugees to go home. Uh, if that was possible, and if not, to find a place to go. And so you immediately get into questions which are very familiar today, the reluctance of states to accept refugees, uh, including you know Western industrialized states, including the U.S., uh, great reluctance to admit any significant number of refugees. Um, some uh, did want to go to Palestine, and uh, for many, Palestine became the way out in the absence of any other alternative. So, in fact, uh, Truman, on uh, concluding on his reading of the Harrison Report, uh, got in touch with the British, who, of course, were the mandatory power in Palestine, and said to them, uh, I'm recommending that you accept 100,000 Jewish refugees immediately. This uh, was for the British, whose policies (laughs) Truman may not have known very much about, policies in in Mandate Palestine, uh, they rejected. Uh, so this led to a number of different things, Anglo-American Committee, the subsequent plan, Morrison-Grady plan, um, a, the decision of the British to bring the Palestinian issue to the UN in 1945, eventually the creation of a special committee on Palestine. You know, one thing led to another. Eventually, it, it led to the partition resolution of November 2947. But I think the Harrison Report is uh, something which deserves a lot more attention than what it has than you know, has generally been given. And uh, it provides really a, uh, a link and a connection with many of these issues that we're concerned about. That's very interesting. So the, the, in terms of Truman's uh, response to the report, it was sort of partially uh, humanitarian, but also partially a question of that the U.S. didn't necessarily want to be responsible for finding a place for these refugees. <laughs> Either in well, the U.S. or elsewhere. Yeah. No. You know. I think. Uh, I think you're absolutely right. I mean. I think Truman's response was on several levels. Uh, for certainly, I would say on a humanitarian level, but also the refugee question was a question that was discussed uh, within the uh, Department of State and within the uh, very very small group of people concerned with Palestine. So, for example, one uh, member of the policy planning staff uh, by the name of Gordon Merriam. Uh, wrote a report in which he 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 presented the view that he repeated many times. The refugee question is an international question, and it should be solved internationally. I mean, again, that echoes today, right, for, for obvious reasons. Now, Truman was aware, he could not but have been aware of the the racist, the nativist, the exclusivist views of those who opposed immigration reform in the U.S., 
Um, none, nonetheless, there were many who argued that uh, even within existing constraints of, uh, of uh, immigration, there was, there was room for more uh, refugees to come. But uh, the emphasis that Truman and those responsible for the emerging Palestine problem, the, the emphasis that they <laughs> chose or that they felt that they had no option but to choose to, um, to, to place was uh, on Palestine as an alternative. So there they didn't, uh, nobody was talking about immigration, restraints on immigration that uh, nobody that the U.S. felt was uh, a significant voice. Of course, those in Palestine were concerned. Palestinians, other Arabs did raise these uh, these same questions, but uh, that didn't generate very much interest. There's a, there's a common perception, uh, particularly on the left, that U.S. foreign policy towards Israel has been overly influenced by an American Zionist lobby. Uh, can you tell us what your research has found um, about this? Um, what role did American Zionists play in shaping U.S. policy um, in the period that you're examining? <clears throat> Look, I think this is a very important question. In my work, I would say that I downplay this because I didn't have sufficient evidence, in my view, to argue differently than what I did. We're not talking about a period that's comparable to the present, where you have uh, as highly mobilized uh, an effective a group. There's nothing comparable to APAC in the period of 1947-48. However, there was a mobilized, there was an organized group of American Zionists um, who were uh, we're not all in uh, in agreement with uh, some of the policies uh, coming from uh, uh, Ben Gurion and uh, <clears throat> the uh, and the officials of the Jewish Agency uh, in the U.S. That's a separate question. They uh, but there was uh, collaboration. So, for example, when uh, in Feb by January February 1948. So this is several months after the Partition Resolution was passed, the UN Partition Resolution. That's uh, 181, and it was passed November 29th, uh, 1947. Between the fall of 47 and the winter of 48, it became clear to U.S. officials, and it became clear, of course, to those living in uh, Palestine and to U.S. Uh, officials on the ground, consuls, that there was an escalating violence as a result of um, the absence of any kind of a consensus accord, meaningful, meaningful uh, consensus between uh, Jews and Arabs uh, in Palestine is insofar as uh, the objectives of the Zionist movement were concerned. It, this awareness uh, reached the point that by January, February 48, there was talk about rethinking the whole uh, partition uh, question and possibly bringing the issue of the, the conflict back to the UN and supporting trusteeship. Now, that the fear of that, that is to say, the Zionist movement in Palestine, Ben-Gurion, you know, the dominant um, uh, party of, of, uh, of, that he headed of, of, of labor in this period, uh, considered this very, 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 very ominous and this is what resulted in the appointment of Eliyahu Epstein, director of the Jewish Agency Political Office in Washington, 
to uh, get on the ball and to uh, arrange to meet with our friends, as uh, as uh, Ball as Eliyahu uh, Epstein wrote. Now that decision to mobilize our friends uh, was, of course, uh, a an appeal to what you might call the lobby, uh, mm. and the Zionist the Zionist movement in the U.S. Mm. Now you are asking a specific question. Uh, what about their influence on policy? I find that, you see, um, in the context of, of the research that I've done, you know, we'll get to that in a moment, I find that problematic. In other words, I find it problematic to say the, the, the Zionist movement, the Zionist lobby, uh, such as it was at the time, played the determining role. I'm not prepared to say that at all. Uh, that uh, strong Zionist supporters had a very clear agenda in terms of the direction they wanted to move the Democratic and the Republican Party in, uh, that they uh, tried to influence uh, Truman at the time, for example, of uh, the presidential campaign in November of 48. This is accurate. This is true. Other people have written about this. But uh, was this the, the did this really determine the, the direction of, of uh, U.S. decisions on uh, the question of Palestine? I don't think so. But were U.S. officials aware of the importance of support for Zionist objectives in the U.S., in addition to uh, being aware of the impact of of, uh, the Holocaust on popular thinking in the U.S. about Palestine? Yes. So, go ahead. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's very interesting. So I guess uh, you already touched on the role briefly of uh, Eliyahu Epstein, uh, but could you tell us a bit more about who he was, who Max Ball was, right? and what their relationship tells us about uh, what you call the oil connection? Right. Well, this is one of the, um, I think, most exciting findings uh, uh, of of my work, and this potentially that in a new direction because look in I should have said this earlier you asked me what uh, you know what about interpretations of uh, of US policy among common uh, commonplace US interpretations uh, one was that uh, the US was antagonistic towards Zionism and opposed the creation of a Jewish state because uh, US officials were concerned about the impact this would have on uh, U.S. access to oil in the Middle East. So what you had was a presentation of a view that, look, Washington faces a choice. Either you support guaranteed access to, to U.S. oil by pursuing policies that are perceived as uh, befriending uh, Arab regimes, or uh, you support uh, uh, Zionist objectives, the creation of a Jewish state in Palestine, and you don't know what the results may be with respect to uh, oil concessions. You might have to, you might be facing the cancellation of such concessions. I found that this is a false choice, that in fact the U.S. was able by 48-49 to choose both to support its its primary objective in in the region was to support uh, access and control uh, by its own U.S. companies, private companies, Aramco is a major one, um, to to assure that continued access and to support uh, eventually the creation of a Jewish state. That these turn out not to be antagonistic. Now, the key 
one of the keys for me. There are two keys. One is, of course, the uh, position of uh, the Saudi government in this period, which was to <coughs> clarify uh, its stand before the U.S. and before its uh, uh, other Arab uh, oil-producing states. And that stand was that uh, it made, that is to say, the Saudi government made a distinction between commercial and political decisions of the U.S. So you had a, a U.S. administration with, uh, with, with which it was in disagreement on political issues, but you had private U.S. corporations uh, with which it was working in harmony. So once the distinction was made between commercial and political, you have the legitimacy then, right, of supporting uh, the commercial the commercial interests that were enormously profitable in a sense that neutralized potential Saudi opposition. But you had something else that happened here. So to go back to the story that I mentioned a, moment, uh, you know, a few seconds ago, so Epstein, who had a, a prominent position, he's director of the Jewish Agency political office in, in Washington, one of two major, the other one was Chertok, I believe, the later Moshe Sharet, um, you know, major representative of the Jewish agency in the U.S. between 45 and 1948. He um, was able to meet Max Ball in uh, February of 48. Who was Max Ball? He was the director. He was, he was, he's not part of the policymaking community, small as it is. He's outside of it. He was the director of the oil and gas division of the Department of the Interior. And his, uh, he, he was considered by the chair of the special subcommittee investigating the role of petroleum in relation to the national defense in 1948 as one of the most knowledgeable people in the U.S. with respect to domestic and foreign sources of oil. Uh, he was um, in touch with the enormous network of uh, committees, commissions, dealing with uh, all problems related to petroleum, national interest, and national defense. It happened, uh, it's, uh, I don't know how to describe that, that accident, but it turned out that uh, his daughter uh, married uh, a young man who was a Palestinian uh, of... Uh, Jewish origin, who subsequently became the first director of Israel's oil company, Delek, Ray Kozlov. Uh, his daughter was, uh, Max Ball's daughter lived uh, with uh, Ray Kozlov, became the wife of Ray Kozlov. Kozlov uh, requested uh, Max Ball, requested a favor of him. He asked him one day in February, would he be willing to meet a friend? The friend was Eliyahu Epstein. So that, you know, sort of bizarre personal twist, you know, bizarre uh, turn of events. Uh, Epstein and Ball met, but what was unpredictable was uh, the, the, the extent of uh, the ease, let's say, of communication between them. Uh, Epstein was very, very clear as to what his interest was. Uh, he, he was upfront with Ball about representing what he represented the Jewish agency, the Jewish agency was very concerned with U.S. policy. And he specifically, uh, Ball asked him, what did, what did he want? What 
said, why was he turning to Bull? And the answer was he turned to Bull because he knew of Bull's role in uh, oil policy um, and because uh, he wanted to know from Bull what the thinking of oil companies was uh, with respect to partition. This is really going, what I say, this is a jugular vein. This is really the heart of the heart of the matter. And they didn't meet once. They met successively over a number of uh, of, of times uh, in Washington. Uh, Ball proposed that Epstein meet with U.S. oil executives. Uh, it didn't happen immediately, but uh, there, there were meetings, and uh, the meetings continued after 1948. That is to say, after uh, Max Bull eventually retired, he and his son, both were geologists, uh, worked together, and they were invited by Ben Gurion to come to Israel. They wrote the first uh, law, uh, the first uh, petroleum policy for uh, for Israel. Uh, as I say, Kozlov uh, uh, became the uh, director of the first Israel uh, oil company, Delek, and question of fuel and fuel access was and remained uh, very important to Israel. So you have here a family connection with political implications that are vastly important. Now, how come this is so little known? <clears throat> so can I continue on this for a moment? Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, so in part, the answer is that, okay, you're dealing now with... Um, developments outside the conventional circle of, of policymakers, because Ball was not part of that. On the other hand, if you know anything about U.S. policy at this period, you'll know, you'll easily understand that the question of, of, of petroleum and access, as I mentioned, you know, as I've said repeatedly, uh, could not be ignored by any of the people involved in, in uh, devising policy. So, there are two things. One, uh, I would recommend to those who uh, have an investigative instinct and who are who are curious to cast the net very, very wide. Uh, Ball is outside the framework, but he has influence in it. I mean, he uh, the sources, by the way, I use with respect to Ball are found in the Harry Truman Library. His papers are in the Harry Truman, H.S. Uh, Truman uh, Presidential Library, and they are a goldmine. His connection with Epstein, by the way, is also discussed in Israeli state archives of the, of the very same period. <clears throat> so uh, part of the, the reason, I think, why uh, Ball's role has been, uh, I would say, ignored in this connection with Epstein is... Uh, it, is that he's out, he's outside of the conventional framework that people uh, look at who are interested in policy. But the second thing is that we come back to this issue of oil. If you are, uh, you know, if you believe that it's important to narrowly define uh, your uh, objectives and you want to look for uh, political objectives of uh, Policymakers and minimize the emphasis on on uh, the economic aspect. Well, then that might be another reason why you would tend not to go in this direction. Um, there is a lot of information, of course, on on Epstein and Israeli sources uh, 
do recognize the important role that he generally that he played. He was one of a group of uh, Arabists who, uh, in fact, he became the first uh, Israeli ambassador to the U.S. as well. So he's a known figure, but the combination uh, is uh, is little known. Sorry, I've gone on so long on that. Oh no, that's all right. It's, it's fascinating. So we might move on. Um, if you could tell us a bit about. Um, how the 1948 Palestine War, or also known as the War of Independence, led to the creation of the Palestinian refugee problem. Yes. And then what Israel's approach was to this problem, and then in turn how the U.S. responded to Israel's approach. Right. Now, here again, I would say that uh, this looking at this period is, is enormously uh, important because uh, most um, conventional accounts, mainstream accounts of U.S. policy in this period do recognize as, uh, not only that the origin of the Palestine refugee problem is in uh, exactly this period, that is to say the, the, the period between uh, the uh, partition resolution, the creation of the state in in 1948 and the period beyond uh, uh, 48. So we're talking about a brief period that uh, resulted in the flight and or expulsion of the figure that's given in U.S. sources varies from 700 to some go as high as 850,000 and more. Uh, the CIA, by the way, recognized the refugee problem as uh, the beyond, in terms of numbers, beyond anything that had occurred during World War II. So the first thing that I want to say is that, um, unlike some of my colleagues who have written about this, I place uh, more emphasis on the U.S. discussion of the refugee problem. I find that it occupies a far more important place than I had known or reason to believe on the basis of what I read. By that I mean there was an awareness of the importance of of the refugee issue for humanitarian and also for political reasons. The assessment that their presence would be potentially destabilizing uh, for a uh, not only for Palestine, but for the states in which Palestinian refugees uh, subsequently went. Now, in <clears throat> Israel declared its independence on May 14th, 1948. Uh, Washington followed with uh, recognition, de facto recognition of U.S. Uh, of the new state, and U.S. officials, <clears throat> of course, uh, affirmed their recognition of Israeli sovereignty. Now, um, in July 48. So Philip Jessup, who was then, and I'm reading from a passage um, that I uh, cited in my in my own book, um, he was acting U.S. representative at the U.N., and he sent the Secretary of State at the time, who was Marshall, uh, a statement of Israel's official position on the question of refugees. So this is how, this is the, the position that the U.S. conveyed uh, to uh, to Washington with respect to Israel's view, and this is uh, the uh, statement: the government of Israel must disclaim any responsibility for the creation of this problem. The charge that these Arabs were forcibly driven out by Israel 
Israel authorities is wholly false. On the contrary, everything possible was done to prevent an exodus, which was a direct result of the folly of the Arab states in organizing and launching a war of aggression against Israel. The impulse of the Arab civilian population to migrate from uh, war areas to avoid being involved in hostilities was fostered by Arab leaders for political motives, and so on. That was the position that uh, Washington understood to be the Israeli position, which was repeated on uh, on numerous occasions. Uh, it differed uh, radically from that of the U.S., and so uh, I have. It's a theme that that uh, runs throughout my book, but particularly in the conclusion, I have uh, what I call, in place of a conclusion, a discussion of discovery, denial, and deferral three stages of the U.S. views of the place of the refugee problem, its implications for resolution of the conflict, and uh, the decision, the the shift in the U.S. position. So the U.S. position in, uh, through, in fact, the summer of 48, was very, very strongly critical of Israel's uh, expulsion of refugees, and critical of conditions that led to refugee flight and supportive of repatriation. This is even before uh, UN Resolution uh, 194 of uh, UN, Re- UN General Assembly Resolution 194, which uh, called for the repatriation of uh, Palestinian refugees, which the U.S. supported. I mean, what happened uh, briefly was this, that by July 48, this is several months after Israel's emergence as an independent state, um, the U.S. State Department, the uh, military became, in fact, were quite impressed by two things. One, what they saw as the uh, very significant shift in the balance of power in the region as a result of Israel's emergence. Two, the effectiveness of its military Three, the comparative strength of its military such that they uh, identified Israel as the second most important military force in the Middle East after Turkey. Now, this is impressive. And indeed, uh, U.S. officials were very impressed by this. And by uh, within a year of uh, Israel's emergence, the Joint Chiefs of Staff and various elements of the U.S. military were... uh, thinking that Israel could potentially be an ally in the region for the U.S. This is not the beginning of what people call a special relationship. I'm I'm making a much more modest statement, but I am saying, suggesting that the origins of the U.S. relationship with Israel go to this period, 48-49. But as a result of this, there was a very deliberate, explicit decision, stop pressuring Israel on the refugee question. Mm. Uh, stop pressuring Israel on the question of inter- internationalization of Jerusalem. Stop pressuring Israel on the question of territorial expansion. Those three issues that U.S. officials then and later uh, concede are at the core uh, of the conflict, they were set aside in favor of what I call a policy of deferral. And the deferral was uh, quite explicit. In other words, a decision was made if if the U.S. to its officials, if you're going to recommend to Israel that it pursue any policy, if you're going to recommend any changes uh, to Israeli policy, 
uh, you have to obtain uh, Israeli approval. So this is something to bear in mind when, you know, at the, at the present time, Vice President Biden goes to Israel and criticizes Israel with respect to settlements. The understanding is nothing is going to follow. There is no policy that's going to follow. It's just talk. But the origin of that shift is not an accident. It's a, de- it's a deliberate shift on the basis of calculations of interest. We've taken up a, enough of your time today, but if you could tell us a little bit about what you're working on um, next briefly, that would be fantastic. Uh, obviously, the, the issue is, is, is not one that I have put aside. So, in fact, I'm continuing to collect, <laughs> collect information for, I, for what I hope will one day be a, a second edition on the significance of some of these uh, issues and the addition of material that I didn't have a chance to include. But right. uh, one, of the, one of the questions that interests me, is, I'm sure interests you as well in a general way, how, do, how does one explain that information which is accessible, I'm using public sources, I'm not using anything that is impossible to find or which you need you know, special permission. Everything is declassified, publicly available. Uh, why, if it's so accessible, is it so invisible, as I always put it? Why don't people... Why haven't people paid more attention to this? Why haven't they responded to this? I, I think this is an important question about the level of political consciousness, um, and I would like to further investigate this. One quick thing I would add to that, and that one day I hope to pursue this. I, I've already written, as I say, on 1958 on U.S. Intervention in Lebanon, but I'm interested in in extending my study of 48 to 1952 and the U.S. perception of uh, the first Arab, the first Arab Spring around the emergence of Gamal Abdel Nasser in Egypt. Right, right, right. Well, that sounds fantastic. Um, thanks very much for being with us on the show today, Irene. Um, we've been talking to uh, Irene Al Genzia who is Professor Emerita at the Department of Political Science at Boston University. Um, She talked to us about her new book, uh, Dying to Forget, Oil Power Palestine and the Foundations of U.S. Policy in the Middle East, which was published in 2015 by Columbia University Press. So uh, thanks very much again, Ari. Thank you so much, Max. I look forward to being in touch with you.